going to be turning to the book of Malachi this morning. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, starting a brand new series for the summer here through the book of Malachi called First Things First. And uh, excited to dive into this with you. If you're looking for Malachi, it is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you know where Matthew's at, find that one and then go backward a little bit. Uh, If you want to go to the middle of your Bible, you can go forward till you find it. Uh, It's a small book, just a couple pages. And so we have to look kind of difficult sometimes, but uh, you can find it there, I'm sure. And we're going to dive into chapter one this morning, uh, but we're only going to look at the first like verse and a half. All right, we're going to do one and a half verses this morning. Uh, as we start off the book of Malachi, uh, getting introduced to this book and what God has to say to us through it this morning. So let's, uh, let's get excited. I'm excited. Let's dive into this together. So um, have you ever in your life, like have you ever been called out by someone? Like, like you did something wrong, you messed up, you made a mistake, and they called you on it? Like they called you on the carpet, right? It's just not fun. Can we agree that's not fun, right? Like you have to like own up to that thing. Um, it's especially not fun when it's your kids that call you out, right? Like we had that happen in our house a couple weeks ago. Um, we have a rule that, that each one of the kids, they only get one hour on a screen a day, whether that be a, a pad or iPad or a phone or whatever video game. And they were like, why do we only get an hour, but you and mom can be on your phones as much as you want? And I was like, Egh. right? Like just right there. And um, so we had to make some adjustments, and we're kind of, you know, fixing that because we want that to be consistent. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's not fun. It's not fun when somebody calls you out. And we see this all the time right now. You see it in the media. You see it on social media. You see it on the news. It seems like everyone's always looking to call somebody else out on something, something they're not happy about, something they don't like, something they disagree with. They want to, they you know, call that out. They want to, to punish them for it. They want to destroy them for their whatever they did. They want to cancel them, as the culture would use that word today. And most of the time, that's in a spirit of anger, right? It's in a spirit of, of wanting to somehow get back at them or, or make them pay for something. Well, today, as we start to look at the book of Malachi, this whole book is God calling us out on some things. But here's the great thing about when God calls us out. He doesn't do it to destroy us. He doesn't do it to punish us or to cancel us. When God calls us out, he calls us back to himself. He calls us to come back to him and to his grace and to experience the relationship that's been broken and that's been strained through whatever it is that he's calling us out on. And he's going to do that here with the Israelites through Malachi, but um, he's equally going to say it to us, as you're going to see that this book speaks just as much to 2023 as it did to the time in which it was written. But here's the key. When God calls us out, here's the key. We have to be willing to listen. Right? Somebody can call you out all day long, but if you're not willing to hear it, then it's going to not do any good in your life. And so as we dig in this morning, here's the main thought. God calls me out of sinful complacency with sovereign compassion. God calls me out of sinful complacency with sovereign compassion. So with that in mind, go ahead and look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 starts off like this. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? First point this morning simply is this, God calls. God calls. In verse 1, it starts off, that it says, this is the word 
of the Lord. And that phrase is oftentimes used in different books in the Old Testament and the prophecies. But don't skip over that. Don't think that that's just filler. That is an important declaration that we need to know and to remember that what we're about to study this summer is straight from the mouth of the God of the universe. These are the words of the Lord to us today. If you're new to Harvest, you, you might be catching on that like here at Harvest, we're just crazy enough to believe that God actually wrote a book. And that it speaks to us. And that he reveals himself to us. And if that's true, if God wrote a book, we want to know what it says. We want to do what it says. And it starts with phrases like this. That the word of the Lord is speaking directly to our hearts. God speaks to his people through the written word both then and now. He does that to reveal himself. He does that to reveal his character to us so that we can know him. He does it to reveal ourselves in our sinful hearts, in our need for his help. He speaks to us to reveal how we can love him, how we can follow him, how we can worship him as our Lord. And this is exactly why we love the word of the Lord. Because it connects us to him. And so he says that this is the word of the Lord, but he also uses another word in there. He says it is an oracle of the word of the Lord. Now that word oracle isn't a word that we use a whole lot today. We don't have a whole lot of context for that. It doesn't even show up in the Bible a whole lot. But it means, it's very important in this context, it means a couple things. Number one, it means that this is a divine message. An oracle is a divine message from God to his people. Secondly, it's a message of utmost importance. That God is speaking and what he's about to say to us is something we need to hear and to receive and friends if we're followers of God we need to understand this is a blessing sometimes I don't know about you sometimes when I read the word of God and it says something to me it doesn't always feel like a blessing but it is the Lord God is speaking to us that's a blessing in our lives but here's the other part of oracle the tinge that is in this word in the Hebrew is that it's also a burden because most of the time, prophecy like this that we're about to study, it's a burdensome message because it usually calls out some sin in our lives. It usually says some hard things to us that we have to hear and respond to. And it's a burden to the hearers, but it was also a burden to the prophets to speak it. Right? If you've ever had to tell somebody an unpopular message that they don't want to hear, that's burdensome. And so as we study Malachi, we need to feel that burden, the same burden that Malachi felt, the same burden the Israelites felt in this message from God coming to us and speaking to our hearts today. We need to feel it, we need to respond to it. The third thing I want to point out as we get ready to study Malachi is that this is a book of prophecy. So when you read the Bible, there's lots of different books in the Bible, there's lots of different genres of literature in the Bible. You have some history, you have some, you know, some wisdom literature, you have some poetry, you have all these different genres. And this one, Malachi, is what we call prophecy. And you need to understand how prophecy works if you're going to understand what he's saying to us in the book. So first of all, prophecy is not history. Okay? Say not history. So not history. Right? It's not a how-to book. It's not a factual, like, step-by-step. -step. Prophecy is much more poetic than it is historical. 
It's going to use lots of images, lots of word pictures, lots of metaphors. Because in doing so, God is trying to convey to us this burdensome message that he has for us. And a lot of times we can feel the emotion of that a lot more through poetic imagery than we can through just cold hard facts. And so he's going to be speaking to us like that. For example, next week we're going to look at verse 3, which says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now when God says that, he doesn't mean that he literally took Esau's heritage and his land and gave it to ravenous dogs. All right, that's not what he's saying. He's using that picture to say that because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion against God, that he lost his heritage. He lost the blessings that were coming to him, and they were devoured as if dogs devour things in the desert. It's imagery, it's pictures to make us feel the weight of what's happening. The second thing you need to know about prophecy is that it has two major components. It's, it does both foretelling and forthtelling. Two different things, okay? Foretelling is telling the future. Like, this is what's going to happen in the future. Prophecy does that sometimes. It gives us a glimpse as to what's coming. But also, prophecy is about foretelling, which is calling out what currently is. It's about just speaking the truth about what's currently going on in the world, or in our hearts, or in the situation. But here's the key. Prophecy in the Bible is only about 10% foretelling and about 90% forthtelling. But as humans, Christians, even the church, we tend to want to like, get really jazzed up and excited about the foretelling part. We're like, oh, God's telling us the future, right? And so we want to come up with like, timelines and dates and like, all the cool stuff. And That's fine in some respects, but that's 10%. 90% of prophecy is foretelling. It's God saying, hey, I see some stuff in your life. I see some stuff in your heart that needs to get fixed. Let's talk about that. So that tells me, as we study books like the book of Malachi, we need to be much more focused on the current state of our hearts than the future state of God's kingdom. The main work that he wants to do is right here. Not in some future version of us or the church or anything else. He's going to do that, but that's not his focus. Malachi, in this book, God's going to use him to call Israel, to call his people, to make some moves and to put the first things first. And that's what he wants to say to us as well. I was thinking this week uh, about my grandparents. Um, you know, we have several sets of grandparents, obviously, and, and one of them has passed away at this point, both uh, grandma and grandpa. But before they passed, they used to own this farm way out in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. And they had this little country house, um, still had an outhouse. I mean, like, legit living in the country, okay? And, and I used to love to go out to their house because it's like you went out there and, like, time just stood still. Like, like nothing else has happened. They didn't have... Wi-Fi and internet. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have anything. They just, they're just living out there, and it was, it, was just, it was just awesome to kind of get away. The one piece of technology they actually had was Grandpa had this little 20-inch TV, like maybe black and white even. I can't even remember. This little 20-inch TV with rabbit ears on the top of it, right? And that's, that's all he had. And the only reason he had that is because he had to watch Cardinals baseball, right? And so, so he would watch his baseball games, and that was pretty much it. Maybe a little bit of news. 
But he would, we would go out there, and so he'd be in his chair, watching the baseball game, in the living room, doing his thing, and he would be like half watching the game and half nodding off, like all day long. Right? Like he'd sleep a little bit and then watch a little bit and sleep a little bit. Well, inevitably, every time we were there, I noticed that, that Grandma, she'd be over in the kitchen doing something or whatever, and she'd come in. She'd be like, hey, Tom, Tom, can you help me with? And every time, he had like this impeccable timing that every time she came in asking for help, he was asleep. It was miraculous, like every time, right? And then there was, a, I remember this one time, like, Grandma comes in, she's like, hey, Tom, can you, and he's, he's sleeping again. And so she sits down, she starts talking with us and you know, kind of chatting it up in the living room a little bit, and then she eventually leaves and goes back. And a couple minutes after she leaves, I see him go, is she gone yet? Grandpa had developed what we would call selective hearing at that point in his life, okay, like, he, he heard what he wanted to hear, and that was pretty much it. And, um, and I think a lot of times we do that with the Lord, right? Like we come to Sunday, we listen to the sermon, we go to small group, we have the discussions, we read our Bible, we do the Bible study stuff, and God's always speaking. He's always calling to us through all these different things, but a lot of times we kind of decide, we kind of pick and choose what we actually want to listen to what we want to hear and respond to from the Lord. And that's what's happening here with the Israelites, and God's going to start calling them like, hey, you need to listen up. Time's running short. You need to listen up to some things that need to get adjusted. And I think he wants us to listen as well. So that's the first question this morning, is when God calls, do I listen? When God calls, do I listen? So the first thing is God calls. Number two, point number two, God calls me out of sinful complacency. So if we go back to verse one again, again it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I want to talk about those two names for a second, all right? First, let's talk about Malachi. Here's a really interesting thing about Malachi is this is the only place in the entire Bible that we hear about Malachi, right? He's not mentioned anywhere else. He's not mentioned in any other Israelite history. We don't know anything about Malachi except for he was a prophet and that was his name. And I think that that's intentional because if you know anything about Malachi, his name actually means messenger, and by not telling us anything else, by not telling us his family of origin or, you know, where he came from or what he did, or, he's, he's, he's a nobody. He's just the messenger. And by being just the messenger, he fades into the background and God's message comes to the forefront. This book isn't about Malachi. This book is all about God and what he wants to say to his people. This is God speaking. In fact, as we start to study, you're going to see there's 55 verses in the book of Malachi, and of those 55 verses, 47 of them are God speaking directly to his people. 47 out of 55. And this reminds me of a, a saying that we oftentimes use here at Harvest. We've been using for years. If you've been around, you've heard it, that the messenger is nothing. The message is everything. It's not about your pastor or your elders or your small group leader or your teacher. 
the messenger is nothing. The message of God, the Word of God, is the most important thing. And that's what we want to put in the forefront. So that's Malachi. And then it says he was speaking to Israel. Now, throughout the book that we're going to study here, Malachi is going to refer to all kinds of different Israelite history and customs and practices and all this other kind of stuff. Like, he's going to talk about temple worship. He's going to talk about the the story of Jacob and Esau. He's going to talk about the prophet Elijah. He's going to talk about the priesthood and the law. All these things. But he never bothers to explain any of it. He just references it and keeps going. Because the original audience, Israel, the Israelites... They didn't need him to explain it because they were living it. (laughs) They knew it, right? They were inundated with it. And so all of his references made perfect sense to them. But unfortunately, we're not them. And so as Christians in 2023, there's a lot of these things that will just fly right over our head if we don't have a context for what he's trying to say. So to help us kind of build that context and understand what we're getting ready to read and study, I'm going to give you like the quick Cliff Notes version of Israel history. Okay? Just going to hit you the high points of like, here's the context in which Malachi was speaking to this people. All right? Do they even have cliff notes anymore? Did I just really date myself with that right there? I think some of y'all like nodded. Some of y'all like, what is he talking about? Another conversation later. Okay. It all started in 2100 BC when God called Abraham to leave his home country and go to Canaan the land of promise, the land that God was going to give to him and to his family, and he promised to make them into a great nation, and he would use this family to bless the entire world. And then from that promise, God gave Abraham a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had twin sons named Jacob and Esau. And out of those two, God chose Jacob to be the chosen son who's who through him God would fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham to produce this great nation from his lineage. And so Jacob changes his name to Israel, and then he has 12 sons. 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel that then grow into the nation that we know today as the Jewish people. However, as they're growing due to a famine in the promised land, they had to leave Canaan and they end up sojourning down to Egypt. And they start living there. They start prospering there. They start really growing, and the family keeps growing and growing. And they, they got so populous that the new king in Egypt like, got kind of concerned that they were going like, to take things over. And so he subjects the whole nation to slavery. And now God's chosen people find them in, themselves in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. Until finally, Moses steps up. God calls him up. And he takes the people and he confronts Pharaoh and he leads God's people out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. And in that wilderness, God comes down and he meets with his people and he speaks to them and he gives them his law, his word, which did a couple things. It helped them to know who he was and how to worship him. It helped them know how to relate to one another and it helped them to give he gave instruction to the priests who were going to lead God's people in their lifestyle of worship and he calls up Moses's brother Aaron to be the first priest the high priest 
And from his lineage would come the priesthood that would continue through Israel for years and years to come. So eventually they wander around in the desert for about 40 years, and then Joshua gets raised up by the Lord to lead them into the promised land. They conquer all of those in the promised land. They take back possession of what God had promised to them. And then they proceed to live in the promised land for the next about 325 years under the rule of judges or leaders who were raised up at various times to help them uh, follow the Lord. And then finally in 1050 BC, God gave them their first king, King Saul, who was kind of a train wreck. So he quickly got replaced by King David, who was much better fit. And then King David had a son named Solomon. And under King Solomon, Israel kind of reached its peak of civilization, right? They, had, they built the temple of God, which was this beautiful, most elaborate thing in all of the world. They had great riches. They had lifestyles. They had all, everybody wanted to come and see. And, and they reached this kind of golden age of Israel. And things were going great until Solomon passes and his son takes over and he's kind of a tyrant. And so it ends up splitting the nation into two different groups, two different countries, nations. The ten northern tribes come together to be formed as Israel. And then you have the two southern tribes become Judah. And they start fighting amongst themselves and having all these problems. So God starts sending them prophets that we have recorded in Scripture to tell them, hey, you're messing up, right? You're not worshiping me. You're worshiping false idols. You're doing all these things I told you not to do. You're not living. You're not following me. You need to repent or some bad things are going to happen. And they didn't repent. And so we get to around uh, 722 B.C., I'm sorry, one of those prophets that he sent specifically to call them to repentance, one of the, the kind of the biggest one was Elijah, right? And he comes, and he's, he has this whole thing going on, and we're going to hear more about him later. So finally, they don't repent, and we get to 722 B.C., where Israel is conquered and taken off into captivity. And then shortly after that, in 586 B.C., Judah falls to Babylon. They're also taken off into captivity, and that kicks off 70 years of discipline from the Lord. The temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, the nation is scattered, everything is in shambles, and for 70 years, they're disciplined for their lack of repentance. Fortunately, eventually, the Persians come in and they overthrow the Babylonians, and this guy named Cyrus is the king, and he actually looks favorably upon the Jews, and he gives them permission to leave and to go back to their homeland and to rebuild their temple to their God. And so they go back and they build the temple again and the temple is completed in 516 B.C. And it's a great rejoicing because now God's temple is back and we can worship Him again. We can be in His presence. But everything else was still in shambles. So eventually Nehemiah comes back with another group and they rebuild the walls and they start to rebuild the city. And now we're really getting somewhere in 445 B.C. Finally, Jerusalem's back. And then in 435 B.C., Malachi steps up, and he's going to speak to this people, to Israel, this remnant that had returned to the promised land, that had returned to Jerusalem. They were living in the shadow of the temple. They were living again in God's city, in their place of of promise, and yet despite their physical position, their hearts were still far from the Lord. 
They had returned to God's land physically, but they had not returned to God spiritually. And it's to this people and to this problem that Malachi is going to speak. And here's the most stunning thing. This prophecy from Malachi is the last words that God is going to speak to his people before he goes silent for 400 years until Jesus comes. This is the last thing that God says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my people, this is what it looks like. He's going to call them to that. So there's two main reasons I give you all that background, okay? Number one, I want you to see that what we're about to study, this is a real book written to real people in a real time in real history. Like this meant something to them, first and foremost, right? So God is speaking to them, but secondly, not only that, but we need that context because not only are they, were they God's people, but today we are God's people. And so therefore, their history is our history, right? We are a continuation of the family of God, and so we are called to the same things that they are called to, to be worshiping God from a heart full of faith, and all the things that he's going to address with them in this book apply equally to us. So that was the Israelites' history, getting them to this point, and then we tie that into their hearts. The reason, we're going to see the reasons that it, the Israel's hearts at this point were far from God was due to unmet expectations. You see, they expected that once the temple was built and Jerusalem was restored, that all the glory of God and all the glory of the nation of Israel would return. That all we got to do is get the temple back up, worshiping God, and then he's going to bless, and he's going to bring all the good stuff, and life's going to be awesome again. And they had a good reason for kind of thinking that. Listen to some of these prophecies that God had spoken to them. Look at Amos 9.14. He said, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. They're like, yes, Lord, yes. We rebuilt the city. We're here. We're doing the thing. Where's the food and the wine? <laughs> like, where's the good stuff? Like, give us the blessings of God again. But they weren't seeing it yet. They weren't experiencing that. That wasn't their reality at this moment. Other verses like Isaiah 62.3 said, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and the royal diadem in the hand of your God. They're like, yes, Lord, we want to be the crown jewel of Yahweh again, just like we were back with Solomon, just like in the, the glory days of Israel. Bring that back. We want that again. And they had this expectation of a grand temple and a world-class city and lavish lifestyles. They wanted all of that, and they were ready for it. And God hadn't delivered yet. And so they started to settle into sinful complacency. They were there... They were doing all the things. They were going to the temple. They were doing the sacrifices. They were, go they were doing all the religious motions. You know what I'm talking about? They were going through all the, the religious stuff. But their hearts were far from the Lord. 
because they had lost their trust in God because they thought he wasn't keeping up his end of the deal. They lost their sense of identity as the chosen people of God. They lost their calling to worship him from, with all of their heart and with all of their mind, with all of their strength. They'd gotten complacent and they allowed their lives to just drift away from God. Like they hadn't consciously thought, like, I'm done with God, I'm walking away, this is it, I'm out. But just over time, one expectation after the next expectation, when it, when it wasn't met and it wasn't met and it wasn't met, they just slowly, almost unconsciously started to drift from the Lord. Have you ever had that experience? Things just felt a little colder. Things just felt a little more distant. God wasn't quite hitting all the things that you wanted or expected. He wasn't doing it your way. And your heart just started to grow cold towards the Lord and you started to drift a little bit. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. They were drifting away from God and back to the things of the world. And in the midst of all of this, they had become cynical with God. That's something that we need to guard our hearts against. Because when we have unmet expectations of God, it's very easy for that to lead to cynicism if we're not careful. We start to doubt. We start to doubt God. We start to to criticize the God of the universe because he's not bowing to our demands and our expectations. He's not doing it on our timetable. He's not working it out the way that we want. You see, what the Israelites had missed was that God wasn't overly concerned about a rebuilt temple. Or a lavish city. Or the circumstances of their lives. Not that he didn't care. But it wasn't primary. All of that good stuff meant nothing to God if their hearts were not for him. The heart was the most important thing. That's what he cared about. And friends, the exact same thing is true for us today. We, we are so blessed by the Lord to live in one of the most prosperous and well-off countries in the entire world. And that's great, and I'm so thankful for that. But listen, a good life and a happy family and a big bank account and a lack of suffering and a big church and a comfortable lifestyle, all of that means nothing to God if our hearts are not for Him. If we're not worshiping Him, if we're not loving Him, if we're not following Him, all of that is nothing to God. What God wanted then is the same thing that He wants now. A people fully committed, fully invested for Him and for His glory. And that's what He's going to speak to throughout the book. 
You know, expectations are a powerful force in the universe, right? They, they have a huge impact on us, right? You, you go to the restaurant, and you expect the server to bring your food out in a timely manner while it's still hot, and if not, it just ruins the whole meal, right? You with me on that, right? We've experienced that? Or you expect the referee to get every call right, every time, exactly like it's supposed to be, and if he doesn't, man, we are living, and we are all over that guy. Expectations. We expect every traffic light to be green between here and our point of destination, and that the cars will perfectly part like the Red Sea so we can just drive through unhindered to wherever we're going. And when it doesn't happen, we get all mad and we start yelling at all the other drivers as if they can do anything about it or they can hear us because of expectations. We expect our spouse to love and cherish us and to, 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 do, to, to acknowledge all the great things that we do for them and to we have all these expectations. And expectations oftentimes are the thermostat to the heart. In other words, they control whether we turn up or turn down our love towards someone based on whether or not they meet those expectations. Right? You do it, love you a little more. You don't, I love you a little less. We don't like to say it like that, but... That's the way our flesh works. And the same thing is true between us and the Lord. When we put expectations on him, especially ones that he never promised to fulfill, we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed and cynical and to doubt the Lord. When, he, when his provision isn't exactly like what we want. When his timing doesn't meet our schedule. When his purposes don't seem to line up with our desires. When he doesn't meet our false expectations of him, we turn away. And our hearts grow cold. And we start to drift. Have you had that experience with the Lord? Have you had that time where you thought he was going to do this, or you asked him to do that, or you wanted him to do this, and he didn't do it, or he didn't do it quick enough, or he didn't do it the way you wanted, and all of a sudden, you felt a little more distance between you and God? You pushed away a little bit. You grew a little colder in your heart towards the Lord. Maybe... That's right now. Some of you, that's you right now. You're feeling that distance. You've drifted because something didn't go the way that you wanted it to or you thought it should. Or you think God has let you down. You think that he's failed you. And all of a sudden there's some drift in your heart. I think we should ask this question, how have my expectations of God impacted my heart towards God? How have my expectations of God that he did or didn't meet impacted my heart towards God? 
Is that, what, is that is what's creating the distance that I feel? Is that what's making this faith journey more difficult right now? If so, we need to repent of some of our expectations. So God calls me out of sinful complacency, number three, with sovereign compassion. Look back at the text, look at verse two. That was all verse one, by the way. We're now in verse two. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how? How have you loved us? Now, you're going to see this all throughout the book of Malachi. God is, sets it up as like a conversation. But it's not that people actually are saying this, but God being God, he knows what they're thinking, right? So he's like, hey, I've loved you. And they're thinking, really? Really? I don't, I, I don't see it. How? How have you loved us? But here's what I think is so impactful about the statement is, the very first words, the very first word that God says to start the whole book of Malachi is, I have loved you. He's about to go into a whole list of all the things they're doing wrong, all the problems they have, all the issues they have, but before he gets to any of that, he starts like, hey, just, just so you know, I love you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. I know things are tough right now. I know they're not going the way that you want. I know that you're struggling under the suffering and the pain. But I'm still here. And I still love you. I always have loved you. I always will love you. And that word love in this context here, in the Old Testament... It's not so much about emotion. It's not so much about affection. It's about God saying, I choose you. I choose to love you. I choose to call you. I choose to be faithful to you no matter what. And he did that first with Israel, but now he's expanded it to everyone who has faith in Christ. He chooses to love us no matter what. His love isn't something that comes and goes with circumstances or failures. When we mess up, when we sin, He doesn't love us less. When we really knock one out of the ballpark, He doesn't love us more. He just loves us. And what's remarkable to me in this section is, we're going to see more next week, that He ties His love to His sovereignty. You see, What he's saying is like, I've set my love on you from the beginning. Before time began, I already promised to love you forever. And that's never changed. Because I am the sovereign Lord. And so God's love here serves as an example. It serves as a proof of his sovereignty. He says, I decided to do it. I promised to do it. And now I'm doing it. I'm still here. I'm still in control. I'm still working in your life. I'm still loving you. Even though you rebelled, even though you rejected me, even though you've been disobedient, I'm still loving you. I chose you. I blessed you. I delivered you. I cared for you. I protected you. 
Now I've redeemed you and restored you. I love you. That's his first words to Israel and to us. So even even if you don't like your present circumstances, even if you want it to happen on a different timetable, even if your suffering is more than you want right now, maybe it feels like even more than you can bear, God says, that doesn't mean that I love you any less. It doesn't mean that I'm, in, I'm any less in control today than I was yesterday. Things are, not out of, not, things are not out of my hands. I'm here. I am present. I am loving you. I always have. I always will. It reminds me of Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's our God. He is the same. The same. And so therefore, his love for us never changes. And yet, he says, I have loved you. And Israel's response is, how? How have you loved us, God? I don't see it. With all the bad stuff in my life, with all the bad stuff in my family, with all the bad stuff in the world around me, with all of the pain and the suffering and the struggles, where? Where have you loved me? How? How can I love a God? How can I follow a God? How can I worship a God who lets all of this happen? God says, you can love me and you can trust my love because I am sovereign. And I think that's a a connection that we don't often make in our understanding of who God is. But it's vital to understanding and believing in the love of God. So I want to give you, as we close, I want to give you five reasons to trust God's sovereignty. Number one, he is good. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. See, friends, we have to remember, if the only thing If the only thing that God ever did for us was forgive our sin, that would be good. And that would be enough. And yet, He has done so much more. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The Lord is good. And because he is good, whatever he does is good. Whatever he allows, in the end, it will be good. Right now it doesn't look good. Right now it doesn't feel good. Right now I can't, I can't see the goodness in it. And yet I know that if God is in it, if God's allowing it, if he, if he is sovereign over it, 
when it's all said and done, it will be good. First, he is good. Number two, he is wise. Romans eleven thirty three 33. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. We don't say inscrutable enough. We, we, we can't understand it. God's wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding is so far above us, so far beyond us, we can't even glimpse his wisdom from our position. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Higher. He sees more. He knows more. He, he, he has a better sense of things than we ever can. And so we have to trust his wisdom. That he is good and he is wise. And number three, he does what he pleases. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. Which might sound scary at first. <laughs> like, God's just up there just doing whatever he wants to do. Right? Like, I, don't have, I don't have any say in it. I don't, get to, I don't get to vote. God just does whatever he wants to do. Yes, he does. And that's awesome. Because he is good. And he is wise. And so everything he does is good and wise. There's nothing, there's no scenario, there's no situation where I can come up with a better decision or a better solution than God can. Everything he does is good and wise. He does all that he pleases. Number four, he rules over all nations and peoples. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God is sovereign over every human and every nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. He's over all of it. He's in control of everything. Nothing is outside of his hands. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's his purposes that will prevail when it's all said and done. No one escapes the hands of the Lord. There is coming a day where he will bring his kingdom to bear on the earth and justice will stand and he will be worshipped and he will be the king of everything. And so right now there's suffering, right now there's struggle, right now there's pain, but one day all of that will be washed away in the great kingdom of our God. And so sometimes we just have to patiently trust and wait for Him to work. He rules over all nations and peoples. And then number five, He has control over all situations. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity... Be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. That they all come through his hands. 
Or how about Isaiah 45, 7? And I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In the good and in the bad, it's all the Lord. It's all in His hands. There is no situation that God cannot fix. There is no change that He cannot make right. There's nothing that He can't use for good. Because He's in control of all of it. And if that's true, then that means for us, hope is never lost. Because our God is always in control. And He is good. And He is wise. And He's doing what He pleases. And He's sovereign over all of it. And Malachi tells us in these first two verses that in His sovereign power, He has determined to love us and compassionately call us to Himself. Now just just to kind of caveat this and just to be clear this morning, not all suffering comes directly from God. Okay? Sometimes there's discipline, sometimes there's punishment for our choices and our sin. But there's also other things, like sometimes we experience the consequences of our sin, just the natural consequences of our sin, or the consequences of other people's sin who have sinned against us. Sometimes it's Satan Right? And he's trying to thwart the efforts of God in the world, and he can bring suffering, and he can bring tragedy. Sometimes it's just the brokenness of this world. The entire creation was broken when sin came into being, and there's all of these ramifications of that that we have to live through. So not all suffering is directly from the hands of God, but no matter what the cause of it is, he uses all of it for our good and for his glory. All of it. Because He is the sovereign Lord. I could give you tons of examples for that. But there's only one that really matters. And that's the fact that God Himself chose to come down to earth and to be born as a man. And then we killed Him. The perfect sinless God suffered the most unjust death of all time. There is no greater suffering than that. There is no greater tragedy in the world than the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross. It's the worst possible thing that could happen. Because it should have been our cross. We were the sinful ones. We're the rebellious ones. We're the ones that deserve death and punishment from the Almighty God. And instead, in His grace, He came Himself to take that punishment for us, to stand in our place, to die on the cross for our sins, go into the grave, and then rise back to life three days later. Because He took the greatest suffering, the greatest tragedy, all of the stuff, and He used it for the greatest good that could ever be done to mankind. He used it to say, I love you. 
I love you so much. I'll die for you. His sovereignty and his love go hand in hand. That's how we know that we are loved by the God of the universe. Are you complacent in following God because he hasn't met your expectations? Have you forgotten the love of God? And have you put on him expectations that he never promised, he never, called, he never, he never gave to you and that set your heart into this complacent drift from the Lord. If that's you this morning, he's calling you out in compassion. He's calling you out in grace, in love, to trust his sovereign love for you and to listen to his word and let it come and change your heart to renew your heart, to call you back. God calls me out of sinful complacency with sovereign compassion. As we study the book of Malachi, God is going to call us out on several different spiritual issues in our life. There's going to be a whole laundry list we're going through this summer. He's going to challenge us to put the first things first in our hearts. But before we get to any of that, before we step into any of that stuff, we got to start where God starts. And he started with, I have loved you. Even before Jesus came in Malachi, God starts with the gospel. He doesn't start with our behaviors. He doesn't start with our failures. He doesn't start with all the problems. He starts with, I have loved you. And he pursues us. And he calls us to put our hearts for him, to love him, to follow him. And so today, I just want you to just, there's no to-dos today. There's no applications to go out and do this week other than this. Hear and receive and believe that God loves you. Everything else flows from that. Everything else in your spiritual life grows from the bedrock of God's love for you. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God. Thank you so much, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you are the sovereign Lord, Lord, that you know the end from the beginning, that nothing is beyond you, nothing that is outside of your reach or beyond your control. Thank you, God, for choosing to love us even when we don't deserve it, even when we are rebellious and sinful, Lord, that you love us because you choose to love us. Thank you for calling us to yourself in compassion. Thank you for pursuing us in your great love. Lord, we praise you. We worship you today. 
You are our sovereign God. You are our compassionate King. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have loved us. Let's pray all this in Christ's name.